Welcome. My, my name's Del, Del Lowenthal. Uh, welcome to our, to our conference on uh, Do We Need a Critical Psychotherapy? Thanks very much for coming. Many thanks to the Freud Museum, to Ivan uh, Ward and uh, his colleagues here for fitting us in. And It's a very busy schedule. So we've got a day where we've got speakers, we've got respondents, and we've got uh, lots of space for you to uh, explore with us uh, these, these various ideas. I need the clicker to move. Where do I? Thanks. This conference is partly launching uh, our book, um, Critical Psychotherapy, Psychoanalysis and Counseling, um, which is available. I do buy at least two copies from the bookshop, uh, which is next door. Let's have a look. So this is, this is our book. This came out uh, last week. And we, this is the program that we have. So we've got, uh, this morning we've got an introduction. We're looking at what can we learn from critical psychology and critical psychiatry. And then in the afternoon, we're looking at external critiques. We were, we're looking on Thursday evening, we had a, a pre-conference event looking at internal uh, critiques. Um, we're looking at users' and educators' perspectives. And in each case, we've got, we've got, we've got respondents um, to, to, to each of these sessions. So if I could just kick off with some um, preliminary questions and an introduction. So are we now getting to a situation where psychotherapy and counselling are far more part of a problem with regard to well-being collectively and individually than a solution? You know, maybe, maybe sort of psychotherapy, psychoanalysis was okay for people in NW3 and a couple of people in Devon, but according to The Guardian, <laughs> you know, we've got one million, one million people a year having therapy. So does that raise other questions of social control? So what are the forces in our society that makes CBT? I'm not against CBT, but how come it's becoming the only game in town almost? Uh, so prevalent, yeah? And how can we, such absurd notions as randomised control trials, I don't see how anyone can get an O-level in mass if they think randomised control trials can be used for the talking therapies. Um, how come we've got all this and this increasing state sanctioning of therapeutic practice? Is it really just to so-called protect the public, and if so, from what? Um, also, to what extent can we see psychiatry and psychology as primarily agents of the state? Yeah? And is this not also now happening to the psychological therapies? Well, what place, if any, is there going to be, or should there be, for the medical model, for the DSM, for psychoanalysis, yeah? is it on the way out? And science, is science appropriate for, our, for what we're doing? And if so, what science? And who says it's science? Well, some, some would, would say, can you all hear me at the back? Yep, yeah, and at the front. <laughs> okay, good. So, uh, some would suggest... <laughs> it's quite intelligent down here. It's the best I can do. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, some would suggest we're in we're in an age of neoliberalism. Uh, we're in a, a climate of increasing state regulated practice. 
with its growth, gross growth, uh, gross growth of manualization, yeah? the training of technicians, and approaches that favour taking clients' minds off their concerns. Now, perhaps we should consider our modality, whatever it is, and wonder about the use of often so-called science in the pursuit of vested interests notions of progress and authority. As I said, we just completed our book, Critical Psychotherapy, Psychoanalysis and Counselling, which arises from aspects like one commentator has put it, such a transformation in practice in recent years. We're going from cottage industry to factory-based production line. Yeah? This is both in the training and the, yeah? and the, you know, this is a kind of sort of industrial revolution from craft industry yeah? to something which is so disruptive that I think a lot of people don't know what's hit them. Well, we're in an era also where those like Edward Snowden's have, have revealed how our telephone calls and emails and monitors in the name of internal security. And there appear to be a significant shift from accepting talking, talking therapies as essentially both confidential and subversive, uh, and in some ways inevitably being located on the edges of society, to such cons- confidentiality being constantly risk-assessed. You know, you know it's... Uh, uh, oh, well, yes, it's confidential unless you do harm to yourself or others. Well, that starts to include anything, potentially. Hmm? I mean, it's, 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 it's really very worrying. You know, the, I saw somebody who spent a long time wondering whether he should rent out a room and uh, not, declare the ta- not declare it to the inland revenue, and he didn't know whether to tell me or not, you know? Was he right? Yeah. More seriously, we're talking on Thursday, for example about what if a a sort of parent, for example, came to see us having a dream of of having uh, sexual intercourse with with one of their children. I mean, this would seem to be the the kind of space that we... But would they get reported now? Would the therapist be able to handle... You know, would, would the therapist have had a therapy that would be able to explore the sort of aspects of sexuality and violence in themselves? Yeah? Would their supervisor be able to to hear it, yeah? Would the parent be an idiot to go to therapy and start to explore that? With, of course, a greater chance that things might get acted out. Um, Well, our our trainings um, um, are increasingly being registered and regulated and incorporated into mainstream society. Hmm? And much of this change has been legitimised through an increasingly pervasive audit culture coupled with a narrow notion of evidence-based practice involving some various dubious claims to be scientific. Yet isn't this more to do, at best, with those in power at times attempting to determine what is science and what is not science? Um, Well, as I said, we already have critical psychiatry and critical psychology, and uh, in this conference we're going to explore where not only what we can learn from what they feel they've done right and not right, uh, but whether there's in some ways an unfortunate need for critical psychotherapy, psychoanalysis and counselling. So the proposition that I think we're considering is, 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 is the main reason we have critical psychiatry and psychology 
that they are, as I say, primarily really become agents of the state. And this is becoming increasingly true, as I mentioned, suggested before, for psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, counselling. Well, um, our students are increasingly seeing their trainings as commodities. Hmm? You know, you do it for so many years, you get the, get the qualification. They're, they're purchasing as customers, rather than far less as a personal exploration. My, my concern uh, is that, that once... <laughs> If we have critical psychotherapy, psychoanalysis and counselling, and, you know, what will happen, it will be a minority module. You know, like you get critical psychology on psychology programmes. You know, you'll get, you'll get a minority, you know, very go-ahead universities will have a module on critical psychotherapy. Um, um, and so that means, by definition, the rest of the programme is uncritical. Of course, there's a danger that, that lots of trainings have being pretty uncritical, you know, just following their guru a bit unquestioningly. So, you know, and in some ways I might have some sort of misplaced nostalgia to return to a situation that never really existed, yeah? But uh, there is the kind of worry about... See, I think all this kind of thing, isn't it? It's, it's really, what can we do to help thoughtful practice? What does it, what does it mean to have thoughtful practice? And I suppose one of the one of the questions that we might look at a little bit today, I don't know, is to what extent what is currently regarded as research has much to do with thoughtful practice. Um, well, of course, this sort of critical add-on, because it's quite a good one, you know, and there's nobody at a university who wouldn't say they're critical in some way. So, you know, I think we, we can be allowed this term. Um, uh, and it also gives a notion of democracy, huh? which I think is probably increasingly becoming, you know, with the, the, what was coming increasingly allu- an illusion of academic freedom. Hmm? So but what is new is the, is the state's um, involvement in purchasing, providing specific psychological therapies. Um, as I say, this has been introduced alongside our new era of neoliberalism, yeah, with its audit culture. And in the UK, what is referred to as new public management, yeah, uh, with its markets, managers, and measurements, and preparing us for all kinds of forms of privatization, perhaps. Well, well, in the talking therapies, perhaps we might be seen as being subject to two developments. So, on the one hand, we've got neoliberalism, encouraging the privatization of everything public, and the commercialization of all things private, affecting our relationships, including what is meant by the notion of public service and how we attempt to educate. It it can be argued that the introduction of new public management, as I said, provides a smokescreen for for such privatisation. However, simultaneously, I always remember when Margaret Thatcher was asked what was her best achievement, and she said, Blair. Um, Just a little aside there. Um, um, However, uh, simultaneously... Uh, the state is tightening its grip on the psychological therapies, as I said, in the name of safeguarding the public. There is the argument neoliberalism has brought out the worst in us, in which case, wh- where are we? Where, where are we as psychotherapists, psychoanalysts, counsellors? Huh? Uh, where are we in relation to these cultural changes? And can we do anything about them? I- I'd like to look with you in a moment as what we might be able to do and see what you think. Well, if the talking therapists 
are becoming too much agents of social control within neoliberalism, could a critical psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, counselling provide an alternative space? Could it do it? Could it get it together? Would it be allowed to? Would it work? Or will the talking therapies only be allowed to survive if we don't rock the neoliberalist boat too much? Well, the market was meant to emancipate us, offering autonomy and freedom. Instead, according to some commentators, it's delivered atomization and loneliness. So where is the common good? What's happened to the common good? in both this and our work as talking therapists. To what extent should we be concerned about the common good as talking therapists? Or is that too political? Is it it possible not to be political if one's plugging individualism? Furthermore, whilst there was a time when as talking therapists um, we, we saw people whose work was was particularly alienating and that mainly had their work provided extrinsic rewards. Isn't our own work becoming where, to quote, the workplace has been overwhelmed by a mad Kafkaesque infrastructure of assessments, monitoring, measuring, surveillance and audits, certainly centrally directed and rigidly planned. You know, and that's happening with people working on placements, the forms they have to fill in. It's working, you know, IAP call centres. You know? um, this, is, this is something where, you know, you get through the day and a bit of money, you, 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 you purchase pleasure afterwards, but not in the actual job. Hmm? Well, wouldn't it be good if there were more people in government? There was that wondrous French Minister of Health. Um, yeah, and he stated... Psychic suffering is neither measurable nor open to evaluation. Yeah? Shouldn't we have a few more ministers like that, don't you think? Yeah? Now, now this was uh, in this book uh, by, uh, edited by Jacques-Alain Miller, um, and which my colleague and friend Robert Snell um, translated some for the European Journal of Psychotherapy and Counselling. And Robert said... For where the British psychoanalytic establishment has, for the most part, been anxious to go along with the challenge to produce evidence and demonstrate treatment efficacy, the Francophone world, at least then, as represented by this book, will have none of it. And in a a detailed, entirely argued essay at the uh, very heart of this uh, uh, book, someone called Eva, can't pronounce it, Catuvel, an eminent Belgian professor of law who spent his professional life examining the nature of evidence refutes the claims of CBT to be founded objectively and scientifically in solid evidence. Such claims, he says, are mere scientism. They rest on a superannuated conception of science as the measure of ultimate truth and a naive 19th century scientific positivism. The epistemology of science might as well not have bothered underlining, as it has done for many years, the social construction of science, which we see all too clearly, I think, with the, with the way NICE goes about measuring our work, or describing the interplay of its actors and the interests and values behind the practice of science. These claims also necessitate a refusal to accept that a patient might choose a rationality other than scientific rationality, in response to psychic malaise. Yeah, good stuff, I think. In any case, what Cachivel asks uh, is, 
what is the, the effective in the field of mental health? The suppression of a symptom, help with living with a symptom. Who fixes and defines the thresholds of effectiveness? Science, the therapist, the subject. Are these thresholds the same from one individual to another, from one kind of suffering to another? Um, well, so, and I think there's a danger, you know, that with, I, I, with regard to, um, um, I just come across so many psychotherapists who are against RCTs other than the one or two studies that have shown that their work's all right, you know? <laughs> they, um, well, in the UK, what probably, has probably had the greatest effect on psychotherapy and one of the greatest effects on, uh, uh, is, is Richard Layard. Yeah? And uh, le- um, his recommendations for the talking therapies uh, and also, of course, there's the work of NICE I mentioned. Well, wh- one view is that the Layard report's been um, very helpful. You know? in, firstly, that the case for the talking therapies in contrast to pharmaceutical <coughs> interventions he has convinced successive governments like nobody before, and I think we've got a lot to thank him for, for that. Um, secondly, governments are increasingly taking mental health needs seriously, but not, not so sure about that. Um, so the problem is that I think Layard um, managed to convince people, what hasn't been done in physical medicine, to, to think on a population-based Medicine, you know, the whole country's mental health, which I think appears, appeals to those into social control, of course. Um, uh, through IAPT, you know, the IAPT national program, the government has rolled it out. Um, um, we have um, tra- training provision and delivery of talking therapy uh, throughout the country, um, but on what might be seen as a very narrow, um, defined evidence-based practice. Yeah? You know, there's, there's not much on the... Uh, on the uh, evidence of intimacy or love. Well, what then becomes favoured are approaches that meet the imposed measurement systems, which seem to be those approaches that clients that take clients' minds off their problems, rather than attempting to help them work through what is bothering them. There's also the kind of thing that, that you know, in some sense, like Aristotle or somebody like that said, we, we should really have the knowledge appropriate to what we're doing. And we have our own way of generating knowledge, you know? We see a patient, a client, uh, we take a supervision, we wonder about it, go back and forth, uh, we occasionally write papers or present at a conference like this, and get some feedback. And that's our way of working. And, and, it's, and it's, this is the basis of physis, physis, physis. It's actually pronounced something like, I can I always get scared, but Greeks tell me it's all right to say it, but it's like shit in English, but it's... Shit! It's the very thing itself. It, it's something that comes out of itself, yeah. But now, now force is being used with terrible, terrible effects. Mm? Um, so, what happens is that um, we have these imposed measurements. Meanwhile, the public is encouraged to have those talking therapies where the evidence base has been established through RCTs. And, of course, what happens, this is not only in the public service, but it starts to affect their expectations of what they'll get in private therapy as well. Yet, given the questions over how appropriate, if not scientifically absurd, RCTs are for investigating therapeutic approaches, 
uh, even when manualized. And we, we, we've worked on this uh, at my uh, own research center, uh, 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 really questioning Nice's approach. You know, it's quite, quite nice to know that randomized control trials are rubbish for random, for, for our work. They actually know it, can say it. Two chairs of it have agreed, but they can't find anything else. So they say it, but then they carry it out. And if you look um, at all our areas, under 7%, they, what they have is to say, well, there's a lot of things. They, there's a question of what information they take. Now, B, BPC, I think, among others, have, have actually got on the guidelines on depression to open it up. So you don't have to believe in their notions of diagnosis and treatment in order for your figures to be collected. Yeah? But nevertheless, when I look, looked at the they have these guidance development groups to, to, to advise NICE. And the, the, there were two psychotherapists on it, only two. One was a consultant CBT, and the other was the person who's responsible for the Savoy Conference, which is implementing, yeah, in, 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 you know, being paid to implement the Department of Health, and they are the people representing us. Yeah? So, so, you know, how scientific is that? Um, well, it is science because it's socially and culturally determined in some ways. But, yeah, so this is, this is what's happening to us. This is what we've allowed to happen, you might say. Um, um, well, perhaps most of CBT's popularity is due to how we both individually and through the state and other interested parties attempt to dilute both our own sexuality and violence and conspire not to stay, step outside the ideology that contains us. Yeah, do you, do you go along with that? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely not. We are on a cognitive behavioural therapist and radical socialist. Decent cognitive behavioural therapists, outside the constraints of IAP, are in there challenging construction every minute, every day, every session. Thank you. I'm 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 not trying to be against CBT. Please don't misunderstand me. And I know a lot of CBT practitioners who are horrified as to what's happened to CBT through IAPT. So what I'm saying is not against CBT. It is against anything, psychoanalysis or CBT, yeah? even post-existentialism, yeah? being the only game in town. That's all I'm saying. But I, I'm, I'm not... I do think it's interesting why CBT has been chosen, yeah? but I don't think it's the CBT you mean to be CBT. So... I don't think we disagree. We may disagree on other things, but I, I, I fully respect what you said. Um, well, there was the idea in the talking therapies that patients, clients, could explore what they found problematic in being clear about themselves. It was often also the case that, that what needed to be spoken about was taboo within the particular culture they came from. Uh, State-involved changes in the cultural practices of the talking therapies increases the possibility that patient clients cannot speak of what is not usually permissible and that talking therapists will be less likely to be trained to hear what is usually not said. Um, one conclusion from our book might be is that there are three very difficult personal and collective ideas, courses of action that we might take if we want to look to change our practice. Um, I don't know, they're just, again, I'm interested, we'll have time to, to explore um, 
throughout the day, but you may not go, go agree with these. But one is this whole idea of therapia from Plato, yeah? No, who's saying scientific and technical thinking are important, yeah? but they should always come second to the resources of the human soul. Now, it's a question of what one means by human soul, yeah? but there's something about humanity first, in some, something about our very being that comes first. And science and technical. Of course, we're in an era where, where what is science? You know, so much of, of what is, is, is um, you know, some of the absolute rubbish of so-called evidence-based practice in our area is just technical thinking at best. Well, secondly, the human soul in all of us is capable of good and evil. Hmm? Yeah? And we, we, we need to be able to potentially have therapies available where we can explore the good and evil in us all, including us as therapists. And of course, that's going out the window. And thirdly, um, that um, not only will we, uh, through the powers that be, in our current case, neoliberalist capitalism, be seduced to otherwise uh, be forced away from really opening up to our clients, patients and ourselves, but we'll individually want to escape through denial unsavory aspects about ourselves. Yet, the assumption remains that the more we can stay open to all this and work it through, then the greater ours and others' potency and potentiality. But, you know, maybe is the world's just too much for us to work it through. When I was a student, we, we were all reading books and talking about alienation, yeah? Now we're so alienated, we can no longer, yeah, yeah, yeah? yeah? The best we can go is to go into a pub with, you know, three screens on, with two football matches on, you know, just to, yeah? Maybe it's just too much. Maybe we've got to have things that take our minds off it. Um, well, th- there's, there's much to support the idea that the state is using uh, psychotherapy, I think, as a form of social control. So whilst it can be argued that oppressing oppressors, uh, that, that, that um, the oppressor perhaps... <laughs> Sorry, I can get this wrong. <laughs> There's so much oppression around, it's difficult to feel, you know, get one's face through this. Um, perhaps it's particularly pertinent that in some ways, um, don't oppressors and oppressed want to be oppressed? Don't oppressors and oppressed really want to be oppressed? So both Marx and Nietzsche, in different ways, have suggested that religion enables people to stop thinking. However, with the demise of religion, and the problem with that, I think, is the demise of notions of the common good as well, for some, yeah? And our fast-developing alienating states of being, facilitated by the forces of consumerism, uh, we also individually welcome the opportunity to be oppressed. The therapists on offer either provide a way of directly taking one's mind off what worries one, or a way that reflects back that we are the person that we would like to think of ourselves. Um, And to a decreasing extent, neither of those. Yes, yeah. So we, we either get our minds taken off things or we get ref- a narcissistic reflection that we're the best things in sliced bread. Yeah, And we can now take our shoes back to the shoe shop, get our money back and not think for a second of the shoe, that shop assistant. Um, so yet perhaps it's also almost too difficult to find a therapy which would allow one to not only see the good in people but also not to deny our sexuality and violence. 
and a place to consider our part in the political setup. This will enable us to consider what we're subject to and we subject others to, including those we are, we are close to and internationally and locally those we're not close to. Well, perhaps much of what I'm saying has been in some ways covered by Paul Ricoeur. And he talked about a method of interpretation which assumes that the literal or surface-level meaning of a text is a method to conceal the political interests which are served by the texts. Yeah? So the purpose of interpretation, then, is more than perhaps some people here are doing, perhaps. Yeah? It's to strip off the concealment unmasking those interests. Right? So, rather than we wrongly regard too much as the natural order of things, perhaps it's time we actually see, through those light marks and others, how capitalism affects our well-being, and through Nietzsche, how morality is man-made, and through Freud, the secrets of our sexuality. All three of them give us the potential to free us, not completely, but to some of that which we don't even know we were subject to. Of course, it's understandable that attempts will be made to dismiss Marx, Nietzsche, Freud. Uh, Again, both from the forces in society and those in the individual. And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be critical of all of them. We need to be suspicious of their suspicion, but not automatically dismissive. Well, in order to work effectively as talking therapists, don't we need to keep open for ourselves and others, even if we disagree with Marx, Freud, Nietzsche and their likes, what we're seeking to unmask. So, I'd like to uh, finally um, um, finally sort of say, well, what, if anything, can we do? Um, Can anything be done? What's been clear for me over the years is that the talking therapies are cultural practices. And more recently, and so is research. So, I'm people here will disagree, I'm sure, but I, I think Freud, Klein, and all that lot, yeah, discovered practices. Yeah? And on discovering practices, they try to invent theories yeah, to explain the practices. And now our poor students at universities waste their lives, I think, doing research in order to try and prove the theories. Um, um, well, there's a question of how we respond to the inappropriateness of forcing an external empirical research method onto psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, counselling. Indeed, for Recur, the hermeneutics of suspicion are in opposition to the scientific understanding, such that, for example, psychoanalysis should not be, should not be attempted to be located within the causal discourse of natural sciences. What's also clear to me is that, um, take me a long time to get here, <laughs> But qualitative research isn't much of an answer either, I don't think. It it, it may help an individual researcher, but cannot usually be generalised, and indeed shouldn't. However, um, we we get from psychology this idea of the practitioner-researcher. So I think increasing trainees, increasingly trainees, are are really wasting their time in terms of preparing for practice. Um, Doing, I don't think it's much to do with thoughtful practice, the kind of research people are doing, whether it be quantitative or qualitative. Huh? Wouldn't it be better, for example, for our students to consider social, economic and technical contexts or even literary studies, yeah? uh, rather than learning about statistics and a bit of biology, etc.? 
However, from the point of view of the state, to take people who want to help others and instead fill their minds with such, I think, substandard technical thinking can be seen as another form of social control. What's now happening is the work of the talking therapist is increasingly becoming detrimental to the therapist's own lives as well. Um, and um, as I've mentioned earlier, it's interesting, I saw a, book, a career advice book for, for schools, yeah? and it said um, what, you, what A-levels you need to do in order to become a psychotherapist. Right? Biology, number one. Well, what are we doing? This is this is the last 10, 15 years. Yeah? And I'm saying, what, you know, what are we doing about this? Yeah? <coughs> it's, it, it, we're, we're not. I'm sorry. You know, the, in some ways, you know, in some ways the BPS is more where it's at. You know? I, I am a psychologist was a psychotherapist, but then, then, then the UPC and, and, uh, and UKCP and other organisations, if in, in some senses, when one, when one looks at that, uh, well, I'd be interested to hear what people got to say about that. Um, but as I said, we're, we're, we're increasingly in a position where, where we may not enjoy implicitly our work, yeah, if we get it, yeah, <laughs> and and that and the instead. We, we, if we do get work in the state system, it will be what we purchase as the results of our emotional labour, really. Well, as for the future training of psychotherapists, could it become more like, um, well, much of the trainings of psychiatrists and psychologists who would seem to be, to be produced often uh, f- from people wanting to help others, these are people who genuinely want to help others who come into these areas, I think, on that to relatively thoughtless technicians caught up in state-endorsed frameworks. Well, in concluding the book on critical psychotherapy, etc., what came for me were were two forces, as I said. One was from the individual who, through what some would call denial, wants to avoid staying with uncomfortable thoughts, fantasies and dreams. And the um, second, second is from those in power who do not want want those that they manage to understand how this is done. I fear that unless we as psychological therapists can re-establish the place we take up in in neoliberalism, if that's possible, then we are rapidly, with regard to the uh, quality of our own alienation and wretchedness, becoming far too much part of the problem rather than the solution. I've been working as a psychotherapist in prisons lately, yeah? And to, to, to say that it's just that individual who I'm seeing to mobilise their own resources and so they can be clearer, yeah? Uh, everyone I saw did not want to go back to, the, to that part of London they'd come from. Yeah? They, they leave the door with £47 pounds or whatever it is, I don't know. Yeah? And, and somehow I was not... How could I intervene in the system? Yeah? Well... So, what can we do? Well, one is to do nothing, yeah? Yeah, I think people like Zizek says that's the worst thing you can do, yeah? Two, we could try and change the way in which NICE goes about producing its recommendations, including its language, composition of DGs and use of RCTs. And I think in different ways the analytic associations in this country have are attempting to do that a little bit. Huh? We could, being in this building, we could take the advice of Peter Fonagy... <laughs> I don't think these are his words, but if you can't beat them, join them in some senses. Yeah, um, And so there is an attempt through uh, DIT and things like this to do, to do something rather similar. Um, 
But the problem is, you then get, you get people, in order to appear to do randomised control trials, yeah? you then standardise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah? But of course you don't standardise, because the key thing is the relationship. Well, one of the key things is the individual that they try and yeah, leave out. So it's just ridiculous. Trying to, I'm talking about uh, talking therapies, not physical uh, health. Yeah? And so you end up training people to meet <laughs> the approach that the government will sanction. Yeah? And so people learn manualised approaches. We train technicians in the end. Um, so perhaps we could do something different. Perhaps we could help stimulate a very different cultural change, traditionally develop our own work, so that we can help people. Well, hear how there are still people there who want to explore personal meaning. Yeah. Um, work Tom's done. Here he is sitting over there. Yeah, is uh, you know looking at people who've. Um, um, experience very severe mental health problems that they they want to want to explore personal meaning, and but where can people do this? And perhaps shouldn't we, if we're going to do research, stick more to our case studies? Well, um, I'd like to say just a few words uh, 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 that I think we're we're in an era. Some people say of hypermodernity. We had a bit of postmodern fun, yeah. And now it's hypermodernity, and there's a there's a French um, guy called Attalie who who's interestingly talking about hypermodernity, and he goes through all kinds of possibilities, and ends up with the only hope he thinks is ultramodernity or modernity of altruism. Um, he says this is the only viable long-term modernity, one that makes the happiness of the other the condition of one's own. Um, so, you know, would it be possible for, in a consulting room, to think about, about, um, not just autonomy, but heteronomy, yeah? What it might mean to put the other first, right? It gets into, you know, that could be how, how they speak of the other, or how us as the other, um, and so on. Um, so, but, but if we need it, uh, being individualistic, uh, um, it's not so, you know, so the encouragement of assertiveness, autonomy, generally individualism, where's that, what's that got to do with the common good? I think also in other wars, uh, as in other wars, we have the opportunity as apparent losers to rethink what we're doing and become stronger for the future. And I, I would like to just end with some, um, well, one, should we have a manifesto? How about that? You know, the, uh, yeah? The, yeah? So the, I don't know if it's an NW3 manifesto, but a manifesto for, uh, yeah? So could we sort of look to threats to, to resist or try and claw back the confidential space that we're losing in, and when people come for therapy, yeah? They're losing that confidential space. Should the training of talking therapists include more sociology, anthropology, political economy, notions of ideology. Huh? Uh, an ideology isn't just what our rivals think. Um, uh, uh, to continue to explore our work through case studies, not RCTs. Uh, should we try and be more wary of state interventions, the DSM, that threaten the, the pluralism of our approaches? Um, uh, well, talking therapists need to be able to work with theirs and others' sexuality and violence. And they need to have a training that can explore that. Um, 
And where we encourage assertiveness, autonomy and individualism, we may need to balance this with heteronomy, the modernity of altruism and the common good. So that's, that's where, um, where, where I've got to. Um, I don't know if any of you are still with me in any sense. Um, but the, uh, I would just say with regard to today in the book that, um, that there are these kind of questions of um, do we need to remind ourselves huh, about where science and te- technology should always take a secondary place, that we are capable of good and evil, yeah? um, that we can find, explore secrets of sexuality and violence in ourselves and others. Um, and that we be wary of us and our society wanting to deny unsavoury aspects. You know, we will see when Anastasius talks today about how violent we are as a society, really. Um, they, so, um, we'll... These things I've already mentioned... Um, We do, we'll find, I don't know if Jay's here yet, but, uh, hi Jay. Jay Watts will talk about how we need multiple stories of signifiers that otherwise threaten to colonise us. Um, clients, as Tom's going to talk about, need the option to explore personal meaning. Um, uh, talking therapists need to recognise their own and others' sexuality and violence. Um, and also question um, values such as, you know, do we assume what is the Freud's happy family romance, you know, with regard to, to uh, um, uh, what we regard as close relational bonds. And uh, Adrian, where's Adrian? Adrian will be exploring other views on that. Um, our approaches need to affect our and others' being and quality of working lives. Do we need to disobey normal rules as psychotherapists? Um, do we need to see how psychotherapy and sexual desire are interwoven with capitalism. How state regulation, though, may, in the, may give the notion of resistance a new meaning, yeah? and may be helpful in, in, um, with us there. Um, so do we need theories outside of our theories in order to look at what we're doing? Yeah? So we'll look at, for example, ideas from the Frankfurt School, which is really perhaps one of the origins of the word critical, which somehow or other we don't mention too much. Yeah? Um, as, as, as to um, whether we need a language from outside our own language. Um, also, um, in using critical rather than radical, huh? um, would we be better off using radical? Yeah? Is there a problem that critical's okay? Yeah? Um, but, you know, rather we don't, we say modernism rather than capitalism, it's easier. Is it easier to say critical rather than radical? Um, so, finally, is it time for psychotherapists, psychoanalysts and counsellors to start thinking more critically about how much we're caught up with individualism, pseudoscience and the language of medicine and clinical psychology? Um, so I'm hoping today we might get to a situation where we perhaps we need, unfortunately, critical psychotherapy, yeah? um, which will allow us to be a little bit more alive, yeah? so long as it's not too much.
Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, now I'm delighted that we've got Julian Lusada to respond. Uh, Julian is uh, chair of the British Psychoanalytic Council, um, is a psychoanalyst and former clinical director of the adult department at the Tavistock and Portland Clinics. So Julian will now talk and then we'll throw it open to to the room. Julian. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm very pleased to be have a bit of time to think and contribute to this conference. Um, the one thing that wasn't on the list, and it's really the thing that I'm going to be talking about, is our own organisations. It seems to me that um, if there's any chance at all for a critical practice or a critical psychotherapy, it will be because it's embedded in an organisation. I'm frankly... Um, I cannot see how uh, a critical project can only be driven by our individual behaviour. I was very interested in the comment from the back, the socialist CBT um, person. Where are you? I can come and see you. I mean, the point is about solidarity, it seems to me. You know, whether you, you know, we have strong enough organisations that can be in a solidarity with what you're doing. And that's... Um, I think what clearly we don't have. Psychotherapists are tribal beasts, um, and you know we fight much more readily, as your anger suggested, um, than we do collaborate on a project. Um, I'm a fully, I mean, as has been obviously said by what was uh, you were told about me, I'm a fully paid-up member of the psychoanalytic community. but I take a position, or try to, fail a lot of the time, that Lenin actually said, I'm a principled but critical supporter. And it seems to me that that is a stance that we have to try and find our way to. Um, I was very influenced um, years ago by a pamphlet called In and Against the State. And it seems to me that's a contradiction that we have to find a way of experiencing. I do not think and I'll, I'll end by saying this, that there is a critical position that doesn't find a relationship with the public domain. So the, I just want to, it seems to me obvious, it's not unfortunate, I, I think it's unfortunate that, I don't know why the word unfortunate, it seems to me obvious that we need a critical psychotherapy, just like we need a critical discourse to counter the contemporary ideology for which we have so little answer. The truth is that it seems to me that the answers that drew me to politics when I was a student, you know, and many others, are so much harder to connect to at the moment. Now, it seems to me a critical state of mind is absolutely central to a psychoanalytic project. It's central to learning. How can you learn if you're not able or willing to challenge the those ideas that are sort of stuck in one's mind. And to that extent, psychoanalysis and politics have one thing in common. That is to say, they both seek to reinterpret the world. They both seek to find ways in which um, resistance to change takes hold of ourselves and our organisations. So... um, 
The other thing I'm just saying, it picks up on what Dell was saying. We are in a period of the industrialization, I think you were implying, of mental health. And the use of therapy as a coercion that is implied by some of the um, is an absolute disgrace. And if we needed a struggle to join up the, the CBT comrade at the back and ourselves, that would be it, it seems to me, the beginning to use quite explicitly um, psychotherapy as a means of coercion. So the question isn't whether we need it, the critical. The question in my mind is why don't we have it? What is it about the growth in psychotherapy on the one hand and the absence of a demand in our organizations, our trainings and our practices um, for such a, a body of people, a body of activity? And I think we need to sort of systemically ask ourselves how has that come about? How have we lost? And there was a movement. There was red therapy. I mean, many of you may not remember it. There was Humpty Dumpty. Hello, John. Um, you know, there were all sorts of socialist-informed therapy movements and literature. Um, but where did it go? Why do we think we have to reinvent it? Why did we lose it? What happened to us? And I mean all of us, in my generation, that we sort of lost touch with or couldn't find a vehicle for the expression of those ideas. And it intrigues me, given the um, crash, given the, um, the way that austerity is used so ideologically, why it is that we've not found our way to having politically progressive ideas. So let me just say very quickly some of the reasons why I think, and I, I mean, they may be controversial, that you may not agree with them, but we have to find some explanation for why psychotherapists, as a movement, of course there are exceptions, but why is it that we're inherently so conservative? And it's not, it's not to do with the work, which is what some people imply. I remember a famous um, uh, quote by a, a Marxist analyst in the States, Russell Jacobi. Then if you haven't read Social Am Amnesia, I... I recommend it to you. He had this wonderful, it was a wonderful polemicist. He said, more sensitivity means revolution or madness. The rest is chatter. <laughs> now, that's a very challenging idea. And I don't actually agree with some of the things in his book, because I do actually believe in clinical work. But let me return to what I think are some of the reasons. Who is it who becomes psychotherapists? At what, well, we know something about the ethnicity by and large. We know that our profession, and although we don't call ourselves that, but uh, our profession is woefully unrepresentative of the community at large. And it, it, it gets increasingly unrepresentative. And we haven't done anything about it. But it's not just the class nature of who becomes psychotherapists. It's the route by which they become that intrigues me. Because many psychotherapists that I've trained and supervised and met have come, if you like, um, as a consequence of their um, sense of betrayal in the public domain. How many times do you hear people say, I cannot bear being a teacher. I cannot stand for another moment, as you were saying, having to write another Rio form, 
having to be managed and industrialized in the West. So they come to training as a refugee. Too many people, politically I'm talking about. And so they take up a training that's sort of split off from their experience in the public domain. And politics takes place at least in part, in large part, in the public domain. So what happens to that lived experience where they were crushed, where they failed, where the system was too powerful or for whatever reason? What happens to that experience when they become training, trained or seek training? And I think that's part of the problem. Is there's a split then between what they might do as citizens, I belong to a political organization, join a political party, um, or most likely don't these days, and what they do and what they train to do as clinicians. And it's certainly true, and um, you know, I know Dell has a lot to say, and the book indeed does say it, about training, about how training could actually keep people in touch with um, where they've come from and what's valuable, and what's difficult, and where are the struggles of what they've come from. I would say one point on the training. It seems to me, sociology and anthropology, I did sociology before, long before I came to psychoanalysis, and I've always been tremendously pleased with that experience. But I think one might like to think about, well, one of the things that had the biggest impact on my learning about infant development was baby observation. Now, why couldn't we have if you like, organizational observation. So people mm. as training as therapists, trying to look at the dynamics of everyday life, could actually be asked to study an organization. Maybe we ought to be thinking about actually part of the training. We should put our trainees in um, political organizations, in the homeless organizations, in the refugee centers. I remember vividly a young, a young candidate who I met at the Hope Not, Hope Not Hate campaign, and how transformative the experience it was for this candidate to actually have to think about, as, as a potential psychoanalyst, what they were learning about hatred of everyday life. But the biggest problem, it seems to me, is the nature of our organizations. And there's a whole history that I don't have time, certainly don't have time to go into now, that one could um, think about here. But in, in 1948, psychoanalysis had the chance to join the, that means. The psychoanalytic community had the opportunity to join, or there were discussions about whether or not it would become a core profession of the NHS. Now, there was a mutual agreement that it shouldn't, unlike social work, unlike psychology, and so forth. Now, to some extent, that did enable psychoanalysis and the psychoanalytic community to develop extraordinary ideas, and there was the post-war generation were remarkable. On the other hand, it consolidated and located the psychoanalytic enterprise on the margin of a developing national institution. And I don't think we've ever recovered. Indeed, we've tried to make this a virtue. And part of the 
what do we do now? Um, you know, that's a, you know, what do we do now? What do we do next? Is it what's Lenin's famous? What is to be done? What is to be done? Ah, that's right. It's funny how, I, how rarely I think of Lenin, but he keeps popping into my mind. One step ahead, he said, in that document. One step ahead, comrades. We don't have to go too far ahead, because nobody will understand what we're talking about. If we're behind them, we're no damn use. And if we're in the same position, we're in, we're in a collusion. So how do we find a political action, a political state of mind that is near enough contemporary preoccupations? And for my way of thinking, it has to start with a critical review of the organizations of which we, are, we have. We don't have, and one of the reasons I took up the chair of the BPC for all its faults was precisely that I believe that one should build an organization that could try and make a bridge, if you like, between clinical work and the public domain. But we don't have psychotherapy organizations. What we have is psychotherapy clubs. And people join them that they exist, like all clubs do, to reproduce the membership. All right? Mm. There is a, a niche product, whether it be CBT or psychoanalysis or whatever it is, um, that the members join, like a club. But they don't join an organization that they believe in or support to have a social purpose. Now, until we can challenge that, it seems to me there is no prospect at all of really a developing um, critical psychotherapy as a, a political force. So moving from club to um, an organization, and I return back to the point about how wounded many psychotherapists are when they take up their training, a deep suspicion of organizational life, a deep suspicion of people like me who take up leadership positions. I was at a um, uh, AGM the other day of uh, an organization, I won't say which, and the standing down um, um, chair gave a speech about their lived experience of being in that role and how ghastly people were to them, how relentlessly you make a mistake and you're attacked for being, well, terrible. I won't go into how the nature of the attack. But what we do to leadership, whether it be in the BPC or the UKCP, and just now, for example, for some reason that I don't know, um, the CEO of the um, UKCP has just suddenly disappeared. What do we do to our organizations? Why do we undermine them um, in the service of maintaining the niche, the club state of mentality? How many clubs... Um, in my near retirement, I've taken up golf, which I highly recommend, very therapeutic, maddening. But how many clubs, how many clubs wouldn't take you? How many clubs don't take women? And so on. So the na inherent nature of a club is to exclude, is to get just enough members to move on, to keep the niche, to keep the golf course, to keep whatever it is intact, in its old form. 
to maintain the status quo. It's only organizations, it seems to me, or parties or whatever, um, that actually inaction, inactivity can change. Um, I'm running out of time, so I must stop in a minute. But I want to say one final point. If I... I really enjoyed the book, and I do recommend it to you. But my other difficulty with it, other than the absence of an, an analysis of the kind of organization we've built as a reflection of the kind of people that we are and how we've been changed over the last period, and we all have, seems to me that you know one has to take some responsibility for our own shift rightwards our own collusion, our own complacency, our own sense that there's nothing to be done. But the other point that I um, have difficulty with is the implicit um, anti-state um, state of mind. Now, we all know, and I have no difficulty in accepting the state, if you like, as, a, uh, as in its oppressive function. But I think we get drawn into a collusion. When the welfare state was, in 1979, relentlessly attacked, and of course Blair continued it, a maternal function of our society was transformed. You all m remember, you know, the welfare state benefits were turned not from the welfare state, but into the nanny state. And what a grip it had on not just those people who were ashamed to use its services, not only on those people who opposed it, but on everybody. We, we now, its agents, are not proud, are not sort of that we are contributing to something that one might call the maternal function. Actually, there is a sense of shame. And one of the expressions of that shame is I was a, a social worker long before I was a psychoanalyst. And if there's a sense, when I was teaching social work, and one of the reasons I left to do precisely what I described other people do, was that the academy of social work, rather than retaining its, psych its psychosocial stance, its essential contribution to the public domain, started giving it up. That the, and maybe that's true that the academy, universities, actually have lost and have got swept along. But the point about the maternal state being turned into the nanny, that it has terrible consequences. And I believe we too easily collude with it. We should ask the question, not just where is the mother gone, the thing that people join, but what has she had to take with her? What is absolutely axiomatic with her departure, namely what she's had to take away? And it's huge. And the demonization and the humiliation of the poor or the needy or the disabled um, is a relentless consequence. But not content with that ideological shift, the attack was on the agents of the state, the chattering classes, all of us. You know, that the shift of, if you like, intellectual, um, political influence was deliberately shifted. And it's a very dangerous shift. Some of the nationalistic, xenophobic, potentially deeply racist political um, shoots contemporarily come from this, is that the confidence, if you like, of the chattering classes took a huge hit, it seemed to me. 
that there is no resistance. There is no, I was talking to a group of social workers, an, and I was remembering when I was Secretary of Shop Stewards in Islington years ago. There's no such union anywhere. There's no movement that people can find their expressions through, hence the need for organization. So I would say, I, you know, I enjoyed, I've read, only read two chapters, alas, I'll read the rest, but um, it seems to me that we have to be principled and critical and fairly modest in what we can achieve. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much, and thanks for opening up questions with regard to psychoanalytic, psychotherapeutic organisations, which I think in the past have very much operated like they used to, when we used to have a motor car industry, we used to have the Society of British Motor Car Manufacturers, which was to protect motor car manufacturers. Um, we no longer have much of a motor car industry. So, and, and also your point about what, if it, what should be the, how should we see the state? Before, rather than go into that, can we take some questions, please, from somebody? Uh, Ivan, have you got a mic? Yeah, I sort of have a question. Can I just say, there's only one speaker and one respondent, there's only been one speaker and one respondent, and there are six minutes left for the rest of us. It, you know, I really hope that in the rest of the day that will not be repeated, because it's totally non-inclusive. I just want to make a, a, a brief comment, although I could sum it up uh, in advance by saying that did the last speaker realise the incongruity of talking about Lenin and membership of a golf club in the same presentation? Um, but uh, in the same um, in the same vein, I'm absolutely astonished. I don't know what I expected to find when I came to this conference, but I did not expect to be overlooked by Samantha Cameron, who is uh, on the wall here, and our fundraising work uh, of the Anna Freud Centre. And if one wanted an image of neoliberalism, there it is. Uh, Samantha Cameron and Ruby Wax, I think it is, uh, with our fundraising work. Not only that, we have this piece of paper which trumpets to all of us the institutional membership and status of all the speakers, most of whom assembled, all of the male, uh, at the front at the beginning. And so I do want to challenge the politics of this occasion and whether it's possible to, be, to, um, to uh, speak of a critical th psychotherapy in a way that doesn't reproduce the very things which are supposedly under question. Uh, can I say... Such as leaving time for questions. Oh, I feel nostalgic. Of course, I, un of course I understood the incongruity. We all live with that. I'm utterly conscious of all sorts of things that are in contradiction with my politics. I could have not said anything about the golf club, but it seemed to me that is the reality between, if you like, the contradictions that many of us have between, if you like, a, a, a critical politics and our own class, historical interests, and so forth. I'm not ashamed of that. And of course, no conference can be without the kind of conflicts and contradictions you suggest. It would be impossible. Can we have some more questions, please? Um, yeah, thank you for your, for your talk and for your book. I'm, I'm, I'll definitely read some of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which bits won't you read? <laughs> oh no, you know people learn in different ways. <laughs> That's, so so um, 
Uh, yeah, so absolutely what Jonathan and you are both trying to say about how we get caught up in and colluded with. And I can, and to, to be honest with you, hearing your talks, I can hear both of you caught up in when you, when you critique social control and regulation, to me, you sound like a neo- neoliberal, you know, completely. Um, Where do you think I should come from? <laughs> so I just wonder, you know, and also something about control and regulation and is bad. So maybe what Julian was saying about um, organizations, and I would say groups, communities, you know, something more, something more where I think, feel inclined to go more towards group psychology because with the criticism, you know, the group is too powerful. The group mind is too powerful. So you can't criticize, I don't think you can criticize it. Um, so following on from the PP Now conference last week, uh, Vamik Vulcan's lecture, really he kept on banging away, you know, we really need better understanding of the group mind and how that functions. Can you say how one might get there? How do you think one would get there? Well, that's what I'm here to learn. <laughs> okay. This is a... this works anyway um, I just thought an obvious point in terms of org- therapeutic organisations would be for public bodies regulating therapy UKCP, BACP B- BPS to be speaking out a- against the government's use of therapy, placing therapists in job centres to which is a very so transparently corrupt and unethical that it's outrageous that the um, professional bodies haven't spoken out about it already. There are, There is going to be a protest on the 26th of June at mm-hmm. Streatham Job Centre where um, some of the, these so-called therapists are going to be placed to um, fix people who are out of work. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's a very clear opportunity for... Um, organizations or us as individual therapists to get involved i think in the the questions that you're raising here well perhaps we can have more details about that later other events i'd like to uh, put a question to julian please uh, about the nature of working within the major uh, psychotherapeutic organizations uh, the extent to which those organizations which do have a dialogue with the public domain become agents of control in their own right. Thus, for example, in the university where I was teaching, um, individualized formulation, the relationship, if you like, between therapist and uh, individual was at the core of our work. BABCP have come down and closed that down. You will manualize. And, and I wonder how you would square that. It seems to me that all we can do as members is to begin a radical alternative from below rather than that um, collusion with the uh, hierarchy which is in uh, cahoots with 
that um, systematic control? Um, I think that the danger you point to is obvious and absolutely you're right. I can't hear you, sorry. So I think the danger that um, of being drawn in and sucked into um, a collusion uh, um, is enormous. I mean, and no more so than when um, the whole question of regulation um, came up, which um, I, as the chair of the BPC, had to take a stand on and did in favour. Not that I'm in favour of the model we've got at the moment, but nonetheless, it does seem to me, it seemed to me in the service of strengthening something called a community, a profession. Being on the margins is fine if you're armed and well organised. Being on the margins alone is just a waste of space, it seems to me. But it is terribly dangerous. And there is no, to my way of thinking, no sort of place where you aren't potentially compromised. But that does depend on precisely what you were saying from what comes up below. You see, all the kind of integrity can't get projected into people who take up roles like I do. You know, and without any challenge to the integrity and political activity of what's going on below. So, I mean, you're quite right that ultimately, if you're to get a, 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 a leadership of integrity with some confidence about being able to take a progressive agenda, they've got to know that there's something underneath that will support them if they go, they put their head above the parapet. And actually, it's very hard, you know, most psychotherapists, obviously probably not in this room, are not joiners. You know, they're sole traders. This is the part of the problem. Mm. We're all sole traders. We don't belong. We have no employer except ourselves. So some of the basic contradiction of capitalism is not expressed through our own activity. And that's a real problem to get over. And it is one of the contributing factors. But it's also, you know, that in some ways we need to be working individually on the margins of society. But we need a society that somehow allows us to do that, whilst us not being quite part of it. Any other questions? Just one back, please. Hi, just a quick one about the organisation. I'm not a psychotherapist, I'm an art therapist, so I work creatively. And just, I guess, organisations are made of individuals and individuals that become psychotherapists aren't different from individuals that are in the rest of society. There isn't like this, there's somehow, I don't know why psychotherapists think that they're special or therapists or, do you know, it's kind of a really bizarre conversation and I think it is possible to have a conference and discussions which are more inclusive and less oppressive I'm not saying I find this oppressive but there are definitely ways of organising discussions it doesn't have to be a top down feeling and it doesn't have to be I don't feel like I am learning something from you but I don't think that you've got the answers or somehow somebody is going to give me the answer in how to get involved in social and political transformations. person next to you. Yeah, I think that, that point about the social and political transformations is key. Um, I wasn't necessarily confident in the, in the manifesto at the end. It felt a bit like, how can we re reconfigure to fit in with the neoliberal agenda? 
so many people have, it causes such great social harm all over the world that really um more and more i don't know even whether resistance is enough it's something about how can we um overthrow it like in barcelona last week ida Calau was um, elected mayor um if you google her um she's really trying to bring about quite radical social change and i think Otherwise, it's just a bit of a bourgeois distraction. People kind of, you talk about the chattering classes and you said we. Um, I don't know, it sounds like a bit of a put down. I've got prejudices towards the middle class, but I try and overcome them. But the thing is, it's like, are, are people too comfortable? Is it, are we only trying to talk about do we need a critical psychotherapy when we're sitting in NW3 when like a friend of mine is on the brink of suicide down in Brighton because she's about to have her benefits fucking taken off of her. Do you know what I mean? It's like, um, that comfort may may not be useful, you know. But that's, I don't know, I'm just making an assumption when you say chattering classes. You just yeah. kind of get a bit of a stereotyped idea in your head, don't you? It's, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, I would just say with the art, art therapy now, art psychotherapy, I think talking therapists in general can also be creative. It's just, it's not just art therapists. And I don't know, again, there's a rather increasing number of chattering classes in Brighton as well. Yeah. Um, and you know there are people around here claiming benefits. In, yeah. you know, so I don't. Yeah. Well, there's nothing. There. I didn't use the chattering classes as a denigration. I'm I'm an absolutely paid up member of the chattering class. It's a question of what we do with our chatter. You know what we do in a world that doesn't value conversation, debate, I, the emergence of ideas. We are being silenced, as if you like the chattering classes. The confidence that we actually make a difference, I think, is much less than it was. Because actually the site of influence, and of course it was precisely the uh, Thatcherite project, to shift, because, you know, she knew, as it were, or what she represented knew, that we disagreed with the kind of neoliberal project that she was about to... So she had to find another site of influence, and of course... That's hence the, hence the arrival of the consumer, you know, which is now what drives so much mental health policy and practice. So um, I think the thing is, what are we going to do today? Are we chatter? Are we going to help increase our, at least our own thoughtful practice? Um, what we've got, we, we need to break for coffee now, but we'll return and we'll hear, well, what can we learn with regard to some of the questions that are being raised from critical psychology and critical psychiatry. What have they found in going through this? What's worked for them? What hasn't worked for them? And then this afternoon, we'll be, we'll be looking at views from, from uh, externally, from, from things like the Frankfurt School, also uh, externally with regard to our ideas on relationships, and also from users and uh, from people who have ideas of how we should train in the future. So we'd have a break, and if it is possible to get back here for our 11.30, sorry about the overrun. Hope to see you come back at 11.30. Thank you.